Good evening. It's good to be here once again, and I'm glad you're able to join us as we continue our study of the book of Romans. Uh, we'll spend uh, just a moment in prayer, thanking the Lord for His Word and asking for His guidance as we continue our study. Again, we are in Romans, and we are still in Romans chapter 5. So let's pray, and uh, we'll get started. Father, as always, we are grateful, thankful so much, Father, for Your Word that You've given us that gives to us, Father, the information that we need about You, about ourselves, about life. Uh, information concerning salvation, what all that you have done for us, how we are able to and how we can live for you. Um, Father, we just we can never thank you enough for all of these things that you give to us. We pray that you would continue to help us to grow in our understanding of your word and that we will increase in our gratitude towards you. We also ask, Lord, that we will increase in our wisdom, that, Father, we may live life rightly, knowing, Lord, that if we live life rightly and uh, live in obedience to your word, we will have much joy in life. And for that, Father, we are uh, both desiring and we are grateful. So we ask now, Lord, for your blessing. And as always, we do thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Romans chapter 5. I'll begin in verse 5, which is kind of where we'll pick it up from uh, last week. And it reads this way. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who is given to us. Last week, as we were looking at this verse, we were dealing with uh, basically assurance of salvation. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's been talking about our justification, and he wants these believers to understand uh, that you can know that you are saved. Uh, that it's not wishful thinking. We're not hoping that one day we might make it. Uh, the idea is that because of what Christ has done, and because of how the gift is given to us, uh, we can know and we can have assurance that we belong to Christ and that uh, we have a place reserved for us already in heaven. So when it comes to assurance uh, of salvation, the assurance that we belong to God, uh, assurance that he loves us and the assurance that he accepts us. John chapter 3 verse 18 says, he who believes in him is not condemned. It's very short, straight to the point. We know from Romans and from other places that we are born sinners and that it is our sin that separates us from God and it is our sin that condemns us. Here it says that if we believe in Christ, we are not condemned. I believe, therefore I am not condemned. Also, if you look through the book of 1 John, he talks a great deal about this. So let me go through several different verses. Uh, if you want to, you can open your Bibles to 1 John. Uh, I'll give you the reference. There's only... Uh, few chapters in the, in the book so it makes it easy to follow but in first john chapter 1 verse 8 it says if we say that we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us very simple very straightforward uh deals with our i guess you would say our honesty the what we what we believe to be true about ourselves uh, and if we are stating somehow that we have not sinned uh we've deceived ourselves and if the truth is in you if the truth is not in you, you don't belong to Christ. First uh, John chapter two verse three. Now by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. Now John is not imagining that we're keeping the commandments of God perfectly. This is just a general statement, but he's telling us that you and I can have this knowledge. We can know that we that we know God. You know we have this this uh, personal. Uh, individual relationship with God himself and 
that knowledge or that assurance comes because I strive to keep his commandments. Verse 28 of chapter 2. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So the, again, the idea is that we abide in Christ uh, and by living in Christ, by nurturing this relationship I have with Christ, he's going to return. And when he does, I will at that point have confidence. I won't be ashamed at his coming. I'll be excited that he's come again. Over in chapter 3 of 1 John, verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. That's a, that's a big one, but on, on one hand, it's, it's at the same time, though it's a big one, it's not, um, it should not be discouraging because it is natural for the believer because God has poured his love in our hearts for us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And he tells us that this love, this commitment that we have towards other believers, again, is evidence and gives to us the assurance that we belong to him uh, and that we don't have a death sentence hanging over us. Moving on a few more verses in 1 John 3 and looking at verses 18 and 19, John writes, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. So he makes it a little more general, talks about basically living out the word of God. And he's talking here about uh, what we do for each other and how we treat each other. So that it's not just something that we say, it's not just our speech, but it's our actions that are affected uh, by the relationship we have with Christ. And it's seen then in our relationship with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Chapter 4, 1 John, verse 7. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. So when he says love has been perfected among us, this idea is that we are expressing the love of God uh, with each other. We accept each other for who we are. Uh, we seek to encourage each other. We pray for each other. And so as a result of this, uh, when, the, when the day of judgment comes, we can have boldness. We don't have to cower. Uh, A, because we do know that our salvation is dependent upon Christ, not ourselves. And then we have the evidence that this salvation is ours because of how we love each other. So this is also described for us in Romans 8. Uh, Romans 8 verse 16 says, The Spirit himself, that's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, that we are children of God. So I'll spend a little bit of time on this to make sure that we understand what's being said and what's not being said. But here he is telling us that there is this sense that we have uh, where the Spirit of God communicates to me uh, that I belong to God. That That's what he's talking about here is, again, this assurance of salvation. So some of the issues that arise out of this, because we do tend to at times misunderstand or even corrupt the scripture. Uh, we don't intend to do that, but sometimes we, we get a little lazy with our study of the Word of God, or maybe we get a little ahead of ourselves, and so confusion can set in when it comes to the meaning of what the Word of God says. So in light of this assurance here that God uh, the Spirit gives us, we should understand that this is not telling us that we should simply take whatever feelings we have, whatever feelings come our way, and automatically associate them with the Spirit of God. Okay, so this is not a blanket statement 
uh, telling us that everything you and I feel is from God. Right? It's clearly not that. Here he is talking about a very specific thing that the Spirit of God does for us, and that is giving to us assurance that we belong to God. So one of the things that we have to think about as we read the whole Bible in, in light of this verse that we have here in Romans 8 is the Holy Spirit is not going to give you and I assurance if we live our life in contradiction to the Scriptures. Okay, so the way that we live, um, the obedience that we uh, maintain, the obedience we have to the Word of God, definitely affects the way that the Spirit of God ministers to us. And so, the reason why I bring this up is because sometimes the individual, you may be one of them, Sometimes we will say, well, I don't have that sense of assurance. Or maybe you're thinking, well, I don't have that assurance now. Uh, maybe you've never had that assurance. Uh, maybe you're just unclear concerning the Holy Spirit and how he gives us this assurance that we belong to him. So we need to look again at our lives, realize that God does not turn a blind eye to the way that we live. And that God is very much involved in our lives individually. He, he interacts with us on a, on a daily basis. And so if we're living a life in contradiction to the Word of God, so let's say that you are um, living unfaithfully to your spouse. Uh, maybe you haven't committed adultery per se, but uh, perhaps you are um, lightly pursuing relationships that are not healthy. In other words, you're, you're kind of seeing what's out there or maybe putting out feelers to see if the feelings you have towards others are reciprocated, something like that. Uh, same idea, you're living in sin. Uh, maybe you are living in dishonesty uh, financially. Maybe there's a lie that you've told people in your family that you perpetuate. Uh, maybe there's uh, some untruths that others at work know about you or believe about you that uh, you perpetuate in whatever way it may happen to be. Um, so if we're if we're living in sin, we should not assume that a a temporary feeling of happiness is a sign from God that He is well pleased with you. Okay, we have to be very careful when it comes to interpreting how we feel and assuming that it is from God, and then assuming that well, I feel pretty happy, so. God is either overlooking my sin or my sin is not that big of a deal or maybe that I'm not in sin. Um, so we have to make sure that we're careful with that and that we're honest with our behavior and how our life lines up with what the Word of God says. It is true that there is this outpouring of the Holy Spirit that does affect our emotions and our feelings. Again, we're dealing with assurance, so we're not talking about revelation. God is not telling you the future. He's not giving you information about other people. Uh, he's not giving you any any information at all. That's not already available in the Word of God. This is just that sense that uh, I belong to Him. So let me kind of explain what's going on in this way. So when we punish or correct our children, let's say when they're young, you know, between four and six years of age, it is not unusual that when we have to punish our children because of disobedience, that when that punishment has ended, they may reach out to us, they extend their arms to us, 
what they're looking for is assurance that we love them and they're looking for it right now um, they want to be reassured that we do love them and care for them and, and most of the time that's that's we, we give that to them immediately we embrace them uh, we let them know that we love and care for them in fact that is the reason why we have disciplined them so we hug them and as a result of that they do feel our love for them they feel that we love them um, now if they remain on the wrong path and let's say they continue to disobey us sometimes we may have to exercise tough love and that is where we want to make sure that they learn the lesson and so we don't give them that assurance immediately we, we kind of withhold it um, and and we do so uh, because we want to I don't know I don't know another way to put this but the idea is to, is to produce in them kind of this feeling of abandonment not that we have abandoned them because we're still there but we want them to feel the pain of that separation or that tension we want them to feel that we want them to feel our disappointment we're not doing that to be cruel to them but because we're trying to teach them we want them to understand the seriousness of what they've done what they have done so we want them to experience these negative emotions for corrective reasons then after learning perhaps proving that they have learned in whatever way that comes uh, that depends on the age of the child and that type of thing but once they've proven themselves uh, to a degree then once again we grant our assurance that we love them uh, we don't we don't we don't leave it in that state uh, we do want them to know and to be reassured that we are not rejecting them or kicking them out of the family so this sense of assurance then is immediate and again there's no new message or revelation that we're giving to them so it is with God uh, when you're laid up maybe with a long bout of sickness uh, sometimes we have to ask ourselves have I have we felt I guess you would say this sense of God's love there's no way to describe it uh, and we have to be careful with that because if we begin to describe um, too often or too much of what this feels like uh, others try to mimic what we've experienced and that's not what we're trying to get at um, we're leaving it vague on purpose uh, because God has not given us the details except he's clearly making it clear that the Spirit of God does witness or bears witness to my spirit that I belong to him so uh, it could be that you and I are not feeling or sensing God's love for us and maybe we haven't sensed it for a long time because we're not living as we should perhaps we're living outside of his word uh, I'm not only speaking of the fact that maybe we're missing church and we're missing prayer because again you can do all those things and still live outside of outside of the word but I'm talking about our attitudes our feelings our secret thoughts our dreams why would God reinforce our bad habits or our bad lifestyle with this instant assurance I, I don't he's not going to do that so we often want to feel the love of God without our loving him with all of our heart mind and strength so we have to evaluate ourselves to make sure that that um, that we're not doing that that we're not trying to quickly brush aside maybe whatever we've done wrong to get that assurance and then just kind of go on about our business remember that God's love for us is unconditional 
But the manifestation or the assurance of his love for us is conditional. So we're going to make sure we have those two things distinctively clear in our minds. God's love for you, the believer, God's love for me is unconditional. His love for us is not based on performance. It's not based on our obedience. It's not based on anything other than himself. His love for us is not based on anything outside of himself. It's based on the fact that he himself is loving and kind and he's good. But now this assurance of his love is conditional. So in the same way that we love our children unconditionally and we often reassure our children that we do love them unconditionally. But giving them that sense of assurance sometimes again is withheld, like we talked about, uh, for disciplinary reasons. Our love is never withheld, but the assurance of our love is withheld because we, we are trying to help them to grow, correct something, whatever the case may happen to be. And God does the same thing with us. So again, I love my children, uh, but there were times when I had to show my displeasure, uh, which is not always anger, it's not rejection. However, when it was needed, uh, I guess you'd say when it was needed most, I did manifest my love towards them. Uh, and again, all of this was because the relationship with my children, their status as my children remains unchanged. Their status as my children never changed, no matter what they did. And that's clear when it comes to our relationship with God. Although maybe my children have experienced a wide range of feelings, and we experience a wide range of feelings, we know by faith that God's love for us is unconditional. It's not based on our feelings. So there are times that God gives us a sense of reassurance that involves our emotions. There are times that we may have this sense without emotions. But I know that God loves me because of what the Word of God says. And we are reassured from that. So we are, we are complete human beings. We have an emotional aspect to our lives that God does not ignore. It needs to be kept in its proper place. And there are times that God accesses that for our sake. But again, we need to make sure that we're clear that we don't take liberties with that and assume that any feeling of warmth or any feeling of peace that we have automatically means that God is approving everything in our life uh, because it doesn't mean that. So again, when it comes to my relationship with Jesus Christ, my relationship with Christ, my standing before God, my position in Christ gives me the right to experience this assurance. But however, God in his wisdom, God the Holy Spirit reserves the right uh, as to when, where, and under what circumstances he will express it. So if a Christian goes through a period when he loses or doesn't have this sense of God loving him, it may be because he's quenched the ministry of the Spirit of God. So I'm not saying it's definitely that, but that's a possibility. Um, you know, God does these these things or deals with us in all kinds of ways because he is continuing to work with us to make us more like his son Christ. Let me read to you. I don't know if you're, I know our church sings this hymn. I don't know if you're watching and you go to another church, if your church ever sings this hymn. Uh, but it's a hymn that's called The Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. Let me read to you the, the words because they really do express um, in a very powerful way uh, the, the love that God has for us. 
It goes this way. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, spread his praise from shore to shore. How he loveth, ever loveth, changeth never, nevermore. How he watches o'er his loved ones, died to call them all his own. How for them he intercedeth, watcheth o'er them from the throne. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, love of every love the best. Tis an ocean full of blessing, tis a haven giving rest. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, tis a heaven of heavens to me. And it lifts me up to glory, for it lifts me up to thee. And so that's it's a, uh, very powerful words and good, good things to meditate on at times to remind ourselves of God's love for us. So the question we can ask ourselves is, has the love of God been poured into your heart? The scripture teaches us that as believers, God has poured his love in our hearts. Do you and I as believers, do we rejoice in Christ with a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory? Uh, we don't always have that. We don't have that all the time. Even if you're walking with the Lord and things are going well, we don't always have this unspeakable rejoicing. But again, remember that this joy that we have from God, it's its more than just happiness. It's a very deep happiness. Um, and so to understand what this joy is, you want to mix with this. I guess you take take happiness and a sense of contentment and a sense of peace, a sense of satisfaction. You kind of kind of bring all those together, and that is this joy that we have because of the relationship that we have with Christ. So the assertion here is that the one who can really rejoice and glory in tribulations, because that's what it goes back to what Paul was talking about, is the one whose heart the love of God has been poured. So that gets back to what we've been talking about all of last week and then a little bit now, and that's this. When you and I go through times of great stress where we carry a heavy burden, um, nothing small, but something that is significant, something that preoccupies our thoughts, something that weighs us down, are we able to rejoice in that? A, a believer who's walking with the Lord, is able to rejoice in that. Again, it doesn't mean that you are giddy. It doesn't mean that you are laughing all the time. But, but it does mean that you will possess, because our joy is not dependent upon our circumstances. But the idea there is that you will experience a stabilizing strength that comes from the Spirit of God where you will uh, feel, for lack of a better term, uh, joy, peace, contentment, sense of satisfaction. Uh, there'll be a calmness because of your ability to trust God in the midst of this difficulty. It doesn't mean that you won't have moments where you will perhaps worry, be preoccupied, and you'll, you'll need to go to the Lord in prayer about those things because obviously, if we're going through these times, we do need to pray and ask the Lord for help, not only for us to get through it, but for God to change perhaps others or change the situation or even to change us. Uh, but there's this very real 
experience that we as Christians should have when we go through times of great trouble. Many believers throughout the world, those who are not blessed as we are, who don't live in a safe culture, who don't live in a wealthy culture like we do. Like There's a lot of stress that we don't have uh, that people in other countries sometimes experience. Remember that believers in other countries not only experience persecution that we don't experience, but sometimes there's a level of um, stress that's present. They may not feel it because of their walk with the Lord, but there's a but there's a level of stress that they may experience that we will never experience. They may live in a country where the economy is teetering and it may collapse at any moment. Uh, imagine what it would be like for believers in Venezuela uh, where in a moment of time uh, a couple years ago, the entire economy just completely collapsed to where all of your money is absolutely worthless. That your cash on hand is of greater value to be used as kindling to light a fire than it is to purchase anything or for anything else. Uh, to where the stores have nothing for you to purchase. That's a, a very uh, scary situation. Especially because in our society, in our culture, very few of us, we, we don't have gardens, we don't live on a farm, we're dependent on the grocery store down the street. And if they don't have food, we don't eat. Now, some of us may think, well, I can drive to another one, but ah, there's grocery stores in all these neighborhoods. All There's several people all trying to get to them. So again, the idea there is that Christians in these countries do experience that peace I've been talking about, that peace and happiness, contentment, satisfaction, that calm. It's quite incredible. Uh, so it's, it's a very real thing that God gives to us, his children. So again, the last warning is this. If and when we experience this assurance and we describe it to others, or you hear others try, try to describe it, the danger is, is that when we or others try to, in the flesh, manufacture this feeling or this assurance, we then have a counterfeit assurance which will deceive us, and we are left empty, and at best we live, we then live our lives seeking that which we cannot obtain. So we have to be careful that we're not trying to manufacture uh, this peace. We just need to leave it to God to give to us uh, the assurance when we need it, and, and not become preoccupied with it. Uh, you, I don't think you and I can seek this assurance. I don't think there's anything in the Bible that says we can seek this assurance. Uh, it doesn't say that if you do this or you do that, then this will happen. It just simply says that this is what the Spirit of God does independently of us. So it's, it's a, we would call that uh, the work of our sovereign Lord, that He decides when each of us will experience that and when we won't. So, again, if you don't have this assurance, it could be that you do not know the Lord. It could be that you don't know Him at all. It could be that you've been seeking a counterfeit. It could be that you are in sin. Or, since there is nothing here that says you will experience this assurance all the time or on demand, uh, remember that the Lord knows you best and will simply give you that assurance when you are in need of it. Because our Father knows best. So, we want to make sure that we understand that it's very real. Uh, 
It is at times withheld for different reasons. God has his reasons. When we truly need it, God will make sure that we have it. And it's just one of those gifts that God gives to us. So back to Romans, Romans 5. Let me read verses 6 through 11. And we'll spend the rest of our time tonight on just verse 6. I don't think we'll finish it up because we want to make sure we dissect it really well and grasp what what Paul is saying. So verse 6 reads this way. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Uh, when I mentioned before that we'll spend the rest of the time on verse 6, uh, that means we'll be spending about 30 minutes on verse 6. Um, that's not really unusual. Uh, I was reading a book today, and it was talking about Jonathan uh, Jonathan Edwards. And uh, as he passed his church, he came to Isaiah chapter 51, verse 8. And he did a sermon series on that verse. 30 sermons. 30 sermons on that one verse. So I think at some point in this year, uh, probably this summer, I think I'm going to uh, look them up and read uh, all 30 of those sermons. I, I think it's magnificent. Because what I do know about Jonathan Edwards is each of those messages will be profound. They will all be filled with truth that glorifies the Lord and will help me uh, to grasp at a much deeper level uh, what's being said in Isaiah 51 and in particular, obviously, uh, verse 8. Uh, so the Word of God is a gold mine and sometimes you can do a lot of digging to unearth the treasures that are there and it just keeps producing. It's pretty incredible. So what we're going to be looking at here is proof of God's love for us or the evidence of God's love for us. So this is going to feed our faith. We're going to look at uh, how the Bible describes uh, God's love for us. And of course this is all wrapped up in what Christ has done for us on the cross but it's 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 going to open up our, our minds so to speak and help us to see more clearly. So again, just verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. So first word we want to look at is the word were. For when we were still without strength. The word were here is in the present tense. So it indicates that this was our continual state. So that's that's the uh, what Paul is getting at. Is that when we were helpless, and we'll get to more of that in a moment, that was our abiding state. We were always in that position. We were always in that condition. So when we were still without strength, when we were still helpless, um, is another way to uh, describe it. Uh, the Greek word that's used there describes the state of someone's limited capacity to do something or to be something. Uh, obviously, this is talking about our being able to save ourselves. And when it comes to being able to save ourselves, sinful men are weak. We are unable. We are strengthless. We are powerless. Uh, there is nothing we can do to save ourselves, nothing we can do to remedy our lost condition. Uh, we are in desperate need of a strong Savior. 
So the phrase, while we were still helpless uh, or without strength, is a reminder of the fact that we were powerless uh, to obtain justification by works. Remember, we've Paul's already gone in great deal about, uh, detail about that, so we're not going to rehash all of that. But just recall the amount of time that Paul spent emphasizing uh, the idea that uh, we were declared just by Christ. And that all of that was based on God and what God has done. And none of it was based on us because, again, we were, we were without strength. We had no strength uh, to do anything. We were unable to do anything, uh, to even assist with um, our salvation. Uh, as I've said before, uh, kind of keep this illustration in mind. Uh, because it used to be often said that salvation is uh, kind of picture where a man is, is in the rough seas and he's drowning. And uh, the gospel is this life preserver. And so we throw out the life preserver uh, in the ocean. And this drowning man tries to make his way over to grab hold of it uh, to be saved. Now that's a... Uh, an inadequate um, illustration because it, it doesn't quite go far enough. So the reality is, is that we have the same ocean that's stormy, uh, but you and I as sinners, we're not on the surface struggling to survive. We've already died. We've, we've drowned. And our bodies, our lungs have filled up with water and we have sunk to the bottom of the ocean floor. God then reaches down to the bottom of the ocean. And he breathes into us life. And he grabs us and pulls us to the surface where we, where we grab hold of the life preserver. That's the picture of salvation. That guy in the bottom of the ocean is powerless. There's nothing he can do. Uh, but God in his mercy, grace, and strength has saved us. So again, this, this without strength or this weakness or this helplessness that we are experiencing before we become uh, before we become believers again is literally we are we're strengthless uh, and again the immediate cause lies in this we had not received the spirit of God and so remember that the non-believers unable to please God in anything that he does uh, and that was that's true for all of us before we become believers so the progression uh, in thought here might be grasped this way this way it is hard to love those who are weak and powerless, but when those same weak and powerless people are also ungodly, meaning they are opposed to all that God stands for, the fact that he loves us is amazing. So th think just for a moment. You know, a lot of times, every illustration is always gonna fall apart at some point. There's no illustration that's gonna perfectly portray uh, the truth of the gospel. They, there are just, aids in helping us to get a, a clear picture, maybe help a, us to understand a nuance of the gospel. But imagine that there was an individual who had tortured one of your children. Uh, when, it, when one of your children was six years old, uh, let's say that this individual took them and broke their bones, abused them, terrified them to no end, uh, and your child was saved, and you, and you know this individual is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So there's no question of, of their guilt. And let's say that that individual 
who opposes everything that you hold dear has drowned and is on the bottom of the ocean. And you have the ability to reach down and to resurrect them. Would you do it? And as you peer down through the ocean and you see who is lying lifeless at the bottom of the ocean? I'm not sure I would. I would say, well, they, they deserve that. They've, they've, they've gotten what comes to them. How am I going to love that person who's done this to me? But, but that's how God loves us. We, we are that person. We are the one who abused his son, beat, tortured, spit on him, rejected him, sinned against him in every way, rejected God at every turn. And we're the ones that are lying lifeless in the bottom of the ocean. And God, because he loves us, has resurrected us and saved us. It's just, no matter how we talk about it, it's very, very difficult to, to grasp. You know, we understand the words, but to really get the sense of it is, is hard. It's very, very difficult. But that's what this is talking about here. So again, uh, no matter how we look at it, the love of God is without any cause outside of himself. This is another fancy way of saying that I said earlier that there is nothing outside of God that causes him to love you or me. Nothing we can do, nothing anybody else can do. Uh, that his love for us comes completely from himself because he is good. So verse 6 again says that um, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. So the phrase in due time or at the right time, it means a point of time or period of time. Uh, frequently, the implication is of being a time that is especially fit for something. Uh, there's no emphasis on precise chronology, but it's that if it's a period of time that is proper for something to happen, it means a moment or a period that is especially appropriate for the right, proper, favorable time for something to be done. Uh, it can refer to the time when things were brought to a crisis. Um, you know, the decisive epic uh, that was waiting for a or a, a strategic point in time. It can refer to a fixed or a definite time, a time when things were brought to a crisis. Um, so again, it's that decisive epic that's been waited for, uh, and again, strategic. It also refers to a specific and a or a predetermined time, or a predetermined period, or a moment of time, uh, in terms of whether events, eras, or seasons, such as in the Bible we have a phrase that's used called the times of the Gentiles. So the word that's used here, kairos, that's where we get our word chronology from, um, defines it's the best time to do something. It is the moment when circumstances are most suitable. You could even say it's a psychologically ripe moment. So Christ's death for us, salvation, was never an afterthought. There was a particular point in time when this was accomplished for us. So what is that particular point in time? Like, why did it happen when it did happen? Well, we can say this. We can say that enough time had passed where it had been proved beyond any doubt that man was incapable of saving himself. So when you read through the Bible, think of it, because there's different ways to read the Bible or different things to think about uh, as you read through the Bible. So if you start with Genesis and you read through the Bible, and you read through creation and the history of man, the history of Israel, and all these things, one of the things to keep in mind is that what the Bible shows us is that man is incapable of saving himself. 
So you start with the fact that man, first of all, is created perfect, uh, without sin. And what does he do? He, he sins. So he's incapable of restraining himself. Uh, we know that Adam and Eve, um, after they were kicked out of the garden, they were kind of ruled by their conscience. Uh, so we can ask the question, was their conscience enough? Was the conscience of man enough? Man knowing good from evil, was that enough to get man to a point that he would choose good and become righteous? Well, no. Uh, the evidence is overwhelming in the scripture that man never did that. Um, what about with um, various forms of human government? Uh, when you work your way through the Bible, you see kingdoms rise and fall and authorities rise and fall and all these different kingdoms and all these different peoples, they had laws and they had rules. Uh, did they respond to the law in such a way that they were able to, to earn righteousness? Well, the answer is no, not at all. So what if the law came from God himself? What if God gave the law and here is the standard? This is how you are to worship me. This is how you are to treat each other. So if the law comes from God, uh, where it's clear for man that this, that this is the way, would man be able to earn uh, his salvation by, by choosing righteousness and being righteous? No, the, the answer is that that doesn't happen. Or, well, what if God sends his prophets to make it doubly clear as to what he meant by the law and to what he wants his people to do? Well, that, that didn't work either. We have records of Israel over and over again, not only disobeying God regardless of what the prophets said, but then they killed the prophets. Um, so, as you as you read through the scripture, what becomes clear is that man just, you give him enough time, enough space, you give him the law, you give him conscience, you give him others to encourage him, you just keep adding to the list all these different things, when is man going to get it and pursue righteousness? And what we see is that man is powerless. And the evidence is overwhelming. So let me go through some things uh, here. Uh, we can say, again, that enough time had passed. We've been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that man was incapable of saving himself. So number one, it had been 1,400 years, 1,400 years since God had given his law to Israel. Ample time to prove Romans 3.20 Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. In fact, remember what we learned as we went through some of this, and we'll see some of it again, is that when God gave the law, not only did it prove that man was incapable of keeping the law, but it actually, in other words, the law of God, which is perfect, when it came in contact with human nature, the natural response of human nature was to sin more. We, the, the giving of the command caused me to want to break the law. Remember one of the ways that we illustrated that, it's, it's a, a minor thing, but it just kind of illustrates this, and that's this. So, when I was young, if my, if my mom was making cookies, which becomes apparent by the smell, if she says to me, I'm making a bunch of cookies, don't touch them. Therefore, such and such an event, I'll make more cookies tomorrow for the rest of us. So when my mother, who I love, and who is my parent, tells me clearly what I should do or what I should not do, 
and what she is going to do for me the next day. All I have to do is follow what she says, the simple command. Yet, when she tells me to not touch those cookies or eat of them, my desire for them now is what? Stronger. Now there's a stronger urge within me. They, they now smell even better. They look more delicious. They are more tempting. That's the idea behind, uh, behind the law of God interacting with the human mind or human, human nature that causes, where, where we can say that the law of God increases a sin. It multiplies it. Secondly, Greek philosophy had its opportunity as well. Uh, this period of time when Paul writes Romans, uh, this period of time in history uh, of thought and the search for truth and ultimate reality had already passed without the answers being discovered. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Jews request a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Verse 21 from the Amplified again reads this way. For when the world, with all its earthly wisdom, failed to perceive and recognize and know God by means of its own philosophy, God in his wisdom was pleased through the foolishness of preaching, salvation procured by Christ, and to be had through him to save those who believed. So when you look outside of the Bible and you look at the history of the world, brilliant men and women had lived and died. Uh, in various civilizations and they were able to think really incredible things and and these wise sages there was no groping for God there was no understanding of God uh, they came with all kinds of weird ideas and strange things and what ended up happening is in many cases ended up increasing wickedness thirdly Roman civilization Law and culture had its opportunity to bring about righteousness. Again, as I mentioned, we had the great civilizations of Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and China. All of those uh, cultures had dabbled in human sacrifice. They had all risen and faded in time. The world had full opportunity in time to save itself, but it completely failed. It, turned, it, it continued to turn its back on God. So the idea is, is that sufficient time had been allowed to prove that nothing else could save man. So that's what is meant in due time. Enough time had passed that all these truths were clear, primarily being that mankind was not interested, he was ungodly, going the opposite direction of God, and he was strengthless or powerless to save himself. And so it says, in due time, what does it say? Christ died. There is, there is a stress in the Greek language on each of those words. In the, in the Greek language, when you read through this verse, the word order is different. And now, uh, you know, in English, we, we go for flow and a lot of other things. You know, in, the, in Greek, it's, it's precise uh, and the word order matters. And so, 
like normally the very first word uh, in the sentence is where the emphasis is. And so when you read this in the Greek, it says Christ. So that's the emphasis, Christ. We being weak, in due season, for ungodly ones died. So that is Christ, in due season, for ungodly ones died. So that's where the emphasis is. So instead of for, uh, you can read it just simply that Christ died. Or Christ died in place of. Christ died for the benefit, or on behalf of, or instead of. So it's definitely talking about the substitutionary death of Christ, that, that Christ took our place. So again, this act of love uh, from Christ, um, it really can never be fully appreciated until we understand exactly who the objects of that love were. And again, it's mentioned us as you know the ungodly ones. So we were unlovable, unlovely, ungodly, helpless to help ourselves. We were sinners. We were constantly rebelling against God's will for our lives. Uh, and we were actually God's mortal enemies. So that is the emphasis. Christ died. It is not his life, his teaching. It is not his miracles that show and prove his love for us. It is his death. So there's another hymn uh, that I want to read to you. And this is just uh, um, a verse from it. And I think that I think the hymn is called And Can It Be. It says, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? One of those, you know, there's some of these old hymns that we sing. The words, and there's there's some great new hymns too. Uh, one of the things that I think sets hymns apart, uh, even from core songs, is hymns tend to be much deeper theologically. Um, the words are just incredible. Uh, as we rehearse the truths of the Word of God. So again, as I've already mentioned, and we'll say it again, Christ died for the ungodly. In the Greek language, the word there really is without worship. Uh, we are those who do not venerate God. Um, it describes a man or a woman who has no fear of God, no reverence for God, no respect for God, or the things of God. Uh, the ungodly are not necessarily irreligious. They might be religious people, but they actively practice the opposite of what the fear of God demands. So, again, you might be religious in sacrificing children. I mean, so, again, remember, religion is a very broad term. But the idea here is that this is an individual who has no fear of God, doesn't reverence God, has no respect for the things of God at all, and is going in the opposite direction of what God demands. Man is unable to obey. He's unable to please God. We are devoid of spiritual truth, uh, godly fear. Um, is often described as a strong restraint against the against evil behavior. So godly fear is very important, and the and the ungodly are those who don't have that. Um, they might be superstitious to a degree, but they don't really have the fear of the Lord. In the Greek language, there's no article before the word ungodly. It's, uh, it's not like the ungodly. It's just ungodly. Um, and so when you look at some of the the books that talk about language, it reads this way. It says, there is no article uh, before the word ungodly in the Greek, and its absence indicates that those who are mentioned are not a distinct class from the godly, but that the term describes mankind in general. 
So when he says that Christ came and died for the ungodly, it wasn't like there was a group of godly and a group of ungodly on the earth. Everyone's ungodly. That's the idea. So the meaning is that Christ died for all as being ungodly. Everyone was that, was ungodly. Uh, this description, it's very vivid. Uh, in reality, it serves to bring out more forcibly, really, the character of God's love. So, this has been said before. I do not know who said this originally. Um, some of you probably have already heard this, but it, it reads this way. God loves us just the way we are, but he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. And, and so that's pretty succinct. So what happens, so what's going on here is that Paul has made the unworthiness of the objects of God's love, which is us. Um, he makes our unworthiness prominent. Um, and so he's going to get into, when we get into verse 7, you know, the, the Greek culture considered that, that the laying down of your life for someone else was heroic. Um, but that kind of sacrifice was not common uh, among Jewish people. It was not really particularly praised. And so that's why then Paul begins by saying, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. So Paul is immediately making it clear. He's already emphasized how unworthy we are uh, in all the description that we went through in verse 6. But he's continuing to emphasize how rare it is for someone to respond in this manner. So as I mentioned before, remember we talked about you know, if you had the power of God to give salvation and the person lying in the bottom of the ocean was the one who had tortured and abused your child, um, nobody, no human being would blame you for leaving them there on the bottom of the ocean floor. There'd be no blame. We would say then that if you were to raise them to life, that that would be just an unusual act of love. But now what he's going to do is go a step further because remember that, that salvation being procured for us was not God just reaching down into the depths of the ocean and raising us to life. All of that was made possible by him sending his son to actually die for us. Remember, that, that was the prerequisite. That our sin had to be punished in Christ. So that's why Paul is emphasizing that aspect. He continues to, to dig a little deeper to show uh, the impossibility of any human being doing this, that God is so uniquely different from us in every way. So the word scarcely in verse 7, it reads, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Scarcely means that it is with great difficulty to get anyone to do this or to have anyone die for another. I mean, I, most of us assume we would die for our loved ones. You know, we would, we would put ourselves in harm's way for our wife or for our husband or for our children. Um, even though we love our friends, most of us wouldn't sacrifice our life for our friends. And we, we definitely wouldn't do it for, an, for someone who's our enemy. Uh, but that's what he's trying to emphasize. Uh, there's a series of books called Vincent's Word Studies. And that's where he gets into the, into the, the Greek language and... Uh, does a study on the word, on, on different words in the Bible, uh, where they come from, their root, how they were used in Greek literature. Several several Greek works like that do that. And Vincent is, is a 
and I would stand by. So this is what he says about the word scarcely. He says the distinction is uh, dikaios or righteous is simply right or just doing all that law or justice requires. Agathos, good, is benevolent, kind, and generous. So the righteous man does what he ought and gives everyone his due. The good man does as much as, he, as ever he can and proves his moral quality by promoting the well-being of him with whom he has to do. So the idea is, is that scarcely for a righteous man. Who is this righteous man that somebody might die for? Well, it's this individual who does what, what he ought to do. Uh, he respects others, gives everyone their due, you know, that kind of thing. So you've heard stories uh, like this, where in Vietnam, World War II, um, <coughs> someone in the army might uh, fall on a grenade to save their buddies. Uh, we've heard of that happening. It doesn't happen a, a lot, but it has happened. Um, but if you think about World War II, I wonder if we ever came across a story where an American GI threw his body on a grenade to save a Nazi. See, I, I mean, we don't, have, we don't have any stories of that happening. We have stories of individuals showing mercy, but not this this thing. Uh, we know that firemen risk their lives to rescue their neighbors from from a fire. Uh, but, you know, we don't have any counts of firemen going to prison for the arsonist. That doesn't happen. A parent may mortgage everything he has to ransom their child. Uh, I've just never heard of a parent who offered to post bond for the child's kidnapper. So you see that this, this rarity of things that we're talking about here is what's being emphasized by Paul. And again, he's doing that because uh, he wants to show the uncommonness of God's love for us. So we'll stop there, um, and we'll pick it up in verse 7 and kind of continue the thought that Paul is developing here so that we can, um, hopefully, uh, the Spirit of God will use this to help us to grow in our gratitude uh, towards the Lord for what He's done for us. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for, again, the book of Romans and for what it describes for us as far as helping us to understand, Father, your love and all that Christ has accomplished for us. We pray that we'll have a, a growing and deeper appreciation for our salvation. We pray that our hearts would be touched and softened as a result of this understanding. The Father, we'd be more inclined uh, to love you and to have a strong desire to live for you because of all that you've done for us. We desire, Father, to have our lives touched and changed as a result of truth. So, Father, we ask now for your blessing and ask, Lord, that you would bring up these things that we've discussed tonight into our memory, that we may think on them. We do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.